Good evening, everyone. How are you? Well, with Leitari Sunday behind us, we are now well beyond the halfway point. Of course, we're coming up to the fifth Sunday of Lent. And then we have Holy Week. And so we are on the final stretch. First off, another thank you to everyone who has been coming to these talks. Obviously, if we don't have you, then there's no point in putting on the talk. So thank you for hungering to learn more about how you can love God and love neighbor in a much more fruitful and authentic fashion. Dr. Ferdinand has a doctorate in educational leadership policy administration, which he earned in 2009 from the University of St. Thomas. He has taught theology, English, German, business, and Catholic studies at both the high school and undergraduate levels. He has regularly taught on St. Francis de Sales and will be offering a four-part adult education course on Francis's introduction to the devout life this July as a part of St. Agnes School's summer series. So again, this summer. Tonight, St. Agnes is grateful to have him offer a brief introduction to St. Francis de Sales and his spiritual doctrine. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kevin Fernand, and I'm going to offer a prayer too. So very good, very good. <laughs> Thank you. Father, and Son, the Holy Spirit, and Heavenly Father, as we draw ever closer to Holy Week, help us to be faithful to our prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Help us also to make sure that whenever we deny ourselves, we do that so that we can make a greater yes for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. What a privilege it is for me to be at St. Agnes, uh, both at the school and with you all this evening. I am so grateful to the sisters and to Liz Kelly, who took the really tough saints. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very grateful. They, uh, I gotta tell you, when I think of St. Catherine of Siena, I've read her dialogues a couple of different times, and neither time did I understand any of it. And so I'm actually grateful that somebody else took the tough ones for me and, uh, and left me with St. Francis de Sales. I'm, I'm grateful on that front. I also would like to thank God for never having endured the dark night of the soul. Um, the, I know that St. John of the Cross it did. I think it was a gift to him. Uh, it was also, I'm, great, I'm sure, a great purgatory to him. And I'm grateful not to have experienced that yet, and I hope that I don't, but, uh, but if I do, maybe I'll be holy enough to manage it by that time. I don't understand, uh, like I said, St. Catherine of Siena, but, uh, but there are few books that I consider to be bedside reading, like The Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales, especially for us lay people. One of the things that uh, I hadn't read St. Francis de Sales until about 20 years ago, and then I read a bad translation. And I don't know how many of you have read good translations of, of things written, and how many of you have read bad translations, but I've read both. And in this case, I think I read three bad translations of St. Francis de Sales before I got to Ryan's The Introduction to the Devout Life. There's a guy by the name of John Ryan from Catholic U who wrote this particular translation. If you have any translation other than the Ryan translation, I'm going to ask you to get the Ryan translation. It will be worth every penny that you pay for it. He originally published it in 1950, again in 1952, and again in 1966. So please, if you're going to pick up a copy, and I would recommend that you do, and I'd recommend that you put it at your bedside, uh, please get the Ryan translation. It's worth, it's worth uh, the extra money. I'd also like to say thank you to Father Moriarty who uh, asked me to speak on St. Francis de Sales. It's been great Lenten spiritual reading for me to go back through the treatise uh, on the love of God and the, uh, the introduction to the devout life. Um, I, so St. So Francis de Sales, is, uh, his background is French, Swiss French. Uh, he lived not that far from Geneva, is where he grew up, in, in uh, kind of a Swiss-French part of Europe. And I'm half French, and I've denied that part of myself, other than St. Francis de Sales, for most of my life. 
uh, not because I don't like the French, but because uh, I, I've concentrated more on the German. And that's prepared me well to be at St. Agnes, uh, given that the, even the Stations of the Cross are in German upstairs. It's, it's a great gift for me to walk through the church. A little bit of historical background. So St. Saint, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and uh, St. John of the Cross were both late 16th century mystics. So St. Francis de Sales wasn't born until 1567. So we're talking about latter half of the 16th century. So these beautiful spiritual writers come right before St. Francis de Sales. And then he dies in, 19, in 1622. Okay, so first half, first quarter of the 17th century is when he, he did most of his work as a bishop. St. Francis de Sales was a bishop, was, uh, was a bishop eventually in Geneva, in Switzerland, though he only went there twice, if you can believe that. You're bishop of a place and you only go there twice. He was also a great spiritual director for any number of lay people. And he concentrated a great deal on the virtue of humility. This is really at the heart of the devout life. It's at the heart of Salesian spirituality. It's at the heart of St. Francis de Sales's works. The last word that he gave to a sister who came to him for confession and direction was the word humility. It's the last word he spoke on December 28, 1622. Humility, last word. It's quite a last word, isn't it? May my last word be as holy. He wrote two, two very important spiritual works, The Introduction to the Devout Life and The Treatise on the Love of God. I'm going to focus most of my attention tonight on The Devout Life. It's the one I've read the most often. It's the one I'm most familiar with and the one that has kicked my hind end for two decades. And so I'm going to share with you some of that kicking that I've received so that you also can participate in having your hind end kicked tonight. But what does the word devout mean? How is it used by DeSales? What does it mean for you and me? I want to give you two quick pieces of advice before I embark any further. The first is prepare yourself for a good, honest wake-up call, a come to Jesus, a slap in the face, a reality check, whatever you want to call it. I've experienced it so often, I'm no longer surprised by it. The second, in the myriad of pieces of spiritual advice that I will give in the name of St. Francis de Sales, put one or two of them in place today, but no more than three. Leave the rest until you're ready for them. God doesn't ask us to do everything today. He asks us to do one thing. And that one thing becomes a second thing. That's how God calls us in the devout life. God will give you one or two each day, but one or more than one or two, I can't even remember from morning prayer. I don't know about you, but there are times when in my morning prayer, God will give me some level of inspiration about something, and by 10 a.m., I've long forgotten. I need to do a quick aside. There's a man by the name of Adolf Tanqueray who wrote a very long book called The Spiritual Life. I don't know how many of you have ever seen this book, experienced it, read it. Um, it's not a page turner by any stretch of the imagination. It is a treatise on ascetical and mystical theology. It categorizes the spiritual life into three ways. And it does that based on the writings of all kinds of different saints. So St. Teresa of Avila and her mansions show up in the spiritual life, as do some of the, some of the, the things from, from St. Francis de Sales. But in this book, uh, Tanqueray describes three ways. The purgative way, the illuminative way, and can we manage the unitive? Yeah. And I put together a little bit of a slide here just to show you kind of the main parts of these uh, three ways. And you can see here the relationship to sin, relationship to prayer, relationship to virtue, and then categories and classes within each of those ways. 
Some of you may say, oh my gosh, a theological portrayal of the spiritual life. I mean, come on, can't we just uh, walk with God and figure it out along the way? Well, the answer is yes. The good news is, though, that uh, he gets it from St. Teresa of Avila. And so from that standpoint, I think we've got a saint that we can trust, rely on, to actually have a sense of where we are in, the, in, the, in our walk with God. Okay? So I want you to, as I'm reading through these, I want you to try to figure out, okay, where am I? Okay? The purgative way is called the way of beginners. These people struggle occasionally with mortal sin. They focus on discursive prayer, which is mainly vocal. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, etc. Okay, so these are discursive prayers. Nothing wrong with them. They are often vocal. So, discursive prayer just means using words. And then, relationship to virtue is they're working on practicing the moral virtues. So, so folks in the beginner's way or in the purgative way, um, concentrate on managing the moral virtues. The three classes that are categorized are people who have converted from significant sin, so they've become converts. And then we have innocent souls, and then we have the one that I think uh, many folks in the Catholic Church struggle with, the lukewarm. And I'm always nervous about saying the lukewarm because you know, they get a kind of a bad treating in, uh, in the revelation of John. You know, would that you were either hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. That, that's not the best treatment of the lukewarm. And so uh, the lukewarm, are, but, but it's another category or class of the purgative way, okay? When we move on to the illuminative way, there's a certain battle for venial sins and affection for venial sins. So what you'll hear a lot of tonight is uh, how much St. Francis de Sales talks about how we are, uh, we are attached to certain sins. We like them. We have an affection for them. We don't want to give them up. And these are typically venial sins. Okay? And these folks in prayer focus on mental prayer. So they move from discursive to mental prayer. This is often called meditation by, uh, by St. Teresa of Avila. And mental prayer just generally, I was working on a on a, uh, on a class last summer where we talked about conversation with Christ, which is St. Teresa of Avila's term for how to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Jesus every day. That's the goal of mental or affective prayer. Okay, so that's, if you, want, if you want to take a look at that book, that's one that can help move your prayer from discursive or vocal to affective or mental prayer. In terms of virtues, they are working on practicing Christian virtues. Meekness, humility, faith, hope, love. So these are the virtues that folks in the illuminative way are working on. They are in generally in two categories, the devout and fervent souls. Now you see the connection. Introduction to the devout life is talking about this class or category of souls and how to move from here to here, okay? So, so in order to situate, I just wanna make sure we situate that so you can see, okay, there are some students, no offense to some of my students, they look at the devout life and they say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, not go to balls and dances or play games of cards and so on and so forth, come on, what can we do? You're taking all the fun out of life, right? Folks who are there are somewhere probably in this beginner's way. And when they look at the devout life, they think, why? Why would I even want that? That's boring. I mean, when you talk about heaven with some folks, they'll say, well, so we're just going to be singing with angels forever? I mean, what, what, what fun is there in that? Uh, and then, of course, you quote the line from Billy Joel in his song, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And, and, uh, and so they get this notion that this is a boring way of life, and life before the purgative way is a load of fun. I'd rather be sinning and having fun than being bored as a devout soul. And so we have to be a little bit careful about about uh, how we introduce the devout life to folks who aren't even ready to yet hear about this, okay? 
The last way, and this is the way that I don't understand, uh, I'm trying to go here in my own life. This way is a way that St. Catherine of Siena writes about in the dialogues, and it's the reason I can't understand her at all. She, her, she, being your sins are real, she's close to perfect. She's, she's in that world of perfection. She's living a life of heroic virtue. She's wholly abandoned herself to Christ. She practices charity. Her life is a prayer, contemplative prayer. Discursive prayer for these saints is, um, is to be endured. They want to be in constant conversation with Jesus. Like I said, I don't understand her and them. I hope one day that I can, uh, maybe, maybe before I die I can get there, but I, I don't know. You know, I, I got to tell you, I just don't see it. I don't know if it's in the cards for me. So, um, I will continue to do my best to move here. <laughs> and, and, I, and, once, and once God be praised, I get to that spot where I'm actually doing that well. And this is you know, three decades I've been at that. Three decades, so 30 years, I've had a daily prayer life. I've been combating sin. And there are certain sins that I still like. Like, man, I love the sin of, of cursing at other drivers. <laughs> I, I, I really do. You know, these people who drive out in front of me, and I think, my gosh, do they, you all have to come from Iowa to show us how you drive here? This, this, is, this is a thing that makes me nervous. No offense to the Iowans in the room. But, but uh, so I, I guess one of the things that I want you to know is that there are certain sins that I think we are attached to, and each of us has them. And it's the attachment that's the biggest problem. Okay, so that, that, uh, that whole aside, why did I do it? Because I want you to know that the audience St. Francis de Sales is writing to is a group of people who no longer struggle with mortal sin generally. They've committed themselves to becoming the best version of themselves that they can be, that God wants them to be. And devout and fervent souls are the focus of this devout life. Okay? Let's move on. In the preface to this, the author's preface by St. Francis de Sales himself, he writes, My purpose is to instruct those who live in town, within families or at court, and by their state of life are obliged to live an ordinary life as to outward appearances. That's me. I'm here living an ordinary life. Sisters, God bless you. You are called to an extraordinary life. I'm happy to live an ordinary life because this is what God has called me to, but I don't want to do an ordinary life in, an, in anything but an extraordinary way. That's what those of us who are called to live in the world have to try to do. When I read that sentence two decades ago, I said, finally, a saint who's willing to help us lay people because you know, the saints wrote for other folks who were who are like them, vowed religious, priests, et cetera, et cetera, and, and God bless them, they, they needed to, but I'm happy that St. Francis de Sales wrote for me and for us who are in, uh, in the world. I shall show to such men that, such, that just as a firefly passes through flames without burning its wings, so also a strong, resolute soul can live in the world without being infected by its moods. A strong, resolute soul can live in the world without being infected by any of its moods. Boy, this world has a lot of moods, doesn't it? The moods are much worse, I think, and even stronger than they were in St. Francis de Sales' time. I think that's true. Uh, therefore, I think it's more difficult today than ever not to be affected by the world's moods. I think it's tougher to go to college today and not be affected by the world's moods at college. I think that's a really tough thing for, for folks to do. And it's the reason why some have said that those who live in the later days will become greater saints because those of us who are living in these days have to endure a tougher culture in the world. I just think that's true. Hence, you will find in the introduction to the devout life a collection of pit bits of good advice stated in plain, intelligible words. He addresses his words to Philothea, Philo, P-H-I-L-O, Thea, T-H-E-A, since I wish to direct what was first written for one person alone to the general benefit of many souls. 
Hence, I use a name that can refer to all who aspire to devotion. Philothea signifies a soul loving or in love with God. Philothea, a soul in love with God. In the first part, I try to change Philothea's simple desire into a solid resolution. After a general confession, she at length makes, uh, makes this in the form of a firm protestation. And I'll explain what a protestation is later. Followed by Holy Communion in which she gives her, him, herself up to her Savior and happily enters into his holy love. So resolution, uh, she wants to make a solid resolution to live a devout life. Okay, so there's the solid resolution. There's a difference between a resolution and a goal. I hope you know the difference. Lenten, we don't call them Lenten goals. We call them Lenten resolutions because from the moment that we start Lent, we put them in place, right? That's what a resolution is. I will do this. Of course, when we fall short, we go to confession. People will say that, that it is only members of religious communities and persons dedicated to devotion who should give special direction in piety. For my own part, dear reader, together with the great, great Saint Dionysius, I tell you that it is primarily the duty of bishops to lead souls to perfection. Boy, I'd love to give that to all the bishops in the United States, wouldn't, wouldn't you? It is the fundamental goal. Now, the bishops are doing the best they can. But, but the, the, the duty of bishops is to lead souls to perfection. That's the truth. It is true, my dear reader, that I write about the devout life. So here he is writing about the devout life, though I myself am not devout. Isn't it amazing how the saints always write about Gosh, I'm writing about something that I'm just, I'm just trying to live, but I'm not there yet either. That's an amazing thing because, shoot, by the time he was writing this book and publishing it in 1609, you know, he's 13 years from his death. He's gone a long way in the devout life. The funny thing about it is, though, I think he honestly believes that he's not devout. I think he's sincere in that. And I think many of the saints are. They're sincere in the fact that they don't believe that they're holy enough. And I think the reason for that is because they see God and they see how much farther God is from them. And they realize, uh-oh, I'm still way away from that. But because they see God clearer than we do, I think we think that we're closer to God and they think they're farther away. And I think that tells you something about where we are compared to where they are. Thus, through God's infinite goodness, I urge unto myself that when I lead this beloved flock in the healthful waters of devotion, he will make my soul his spouse and put in my ears the golden words of his holy love and in my arms the strength to practice them well. So that's the reason he writes The Devout Life. It's a great gift. It's one of the great secrets of teaching is we get to keep teaching that which we're still trying to learn. So, so part of the gift to me tonight is, oh, you all forced me to actually walk through the devout life again, and thank God for that, because maybe I'll get a little holier in the midst of all that. So don't forget to listen for the one or two things that God is saying to you through St. Francis de Sales. I'm going to start now into uh, the response. So he, he ends his book with what the world is going to be like if you aspire to a devout life. This is how the world is going to treat you. As soon as worldly people see that you wish to follow a devout life, they aim a thousand darts of mockery and even detraction at you. The most malicious of you will slander your conversion as hypocrisy and trickery. They will say that the world has turned against you and rebuffed by it, you have turned to God. Your friends will raise a host of objections which they consider very prudent and charitable. They will tell you that you will become depressed, lose your reputation in the world, be unbearable, grow old before your time, that your affairs at home will suffer. You can save your soul without going to such extremes. In today's language, you'd be called a Jesus freak, a Bible thumper, a homophobe, which is one of the worst things that you can be called in this world by, by, the, by the left. Religious bigots, holy rollers, 
close-minded, right-wing radicals, I mean, I can keep listing these, or a papist. <laughs> In addition, you will be thought to be weak-minded, uh, unable to deal with the ups and downs of life, but how wrong they are. It takes more strength and self-discipline to practice the devout life than any other way of life. If we are ready to laugh, play cards, or dance with the world in order to please it, it will be scandalized at us. And if we don't, it will accuse us of hypocrisy and melancholy. Whatever we do, the world will wage war on us. If we stay a long time in the, confession, in the confessional, it will wonder how we can have so much to say. If we stay only a short time, it will say we haven't told everything. It will watch all our actions and at a single little angry word, which he is famous for having uttered a few angry words during the course of his life. It will watch all our actions and at a single angry word, it will protest that we can't get along with anyone. You have bid a great general farewell to the world's follies and vanities and this farewell may bring on a feeling of sadness and discouragement to you. A single day of devotion, however, is better than 1,000 years of worldly life. It's beautiful, isn't it? One day of devotion. One of the things that I'm happy to say to students sometimes is, you know what? Sometimes I'm so concerned because you seem so unhappy to me. And if you would come follow Jesus, that happiness would be in your heart and in your soul all the time, and nothing could take it away. Nothing. And I gotta tell you, it's great living, or at least trying to live a life faithful to Christ. It's a great gift. And so we have to just keep trying, keep working on it. But I'll tell you, there's a happiness and a joy that comes with that that I think should, be, should permeate our entire lives. And so sometimes I'll mock them and say, I'm happier than you are. <laughs> the first part of the introduction to devout life uh, deals with instructions and exercises to help a soul from its first desire to, to live a devout life until brought to a full resolution to embrace it. There's a desire to move through this. I've often talked about uh, living a Christian life as starting by getting in a, taking a boat and putting it in the water. You, you put your, or your canoe, you put your canoe in the water. Putting your canoe in the water is the first step in the beginner's way. And that water has a torrent that's leading you backward. And you gotta paddle like heck just to make your way upstream. And heaven is a long way upstream. And you've got to paddle. You stop paddling, and what's happened? You're flowing back downstream. And at the other end of that is hell. Uh, and so you just keep paddling like, like you can. And putting your boat in the water and putting your paddle in is like the beginners. And then paddling is here. And you only paddle by combating sin somehow praying, developing your virtue, and trying to live a devout life. That's the, that's the goal of the spiritual life. He distinguishes true devotion from false devotion. True devotion is only one, he said. False devotion is many. Some examples of false devotions. A man given to fasting thinks himself very devout if he, if he fasts, although his heart may be filled with hatred, Another man thinks him devout, himself devout because he daily recites a vast number of prayers. But after saying them, he utters the most disagreeable, arrogant, and harmful words at home and among the neighbors. Another gladly takes a coin out of his purse and gives it to the poor, but he cannot extract kindness from his heart and forgive his enemies. Another forgives his enemies, but never pays his creditors unless compelled to do so by force of law. So there are examples of false devotion. And then he gives this definition. Let's see if we can unpack it quick. Devotion is simply that spiritual agility and vivacity by which charity works in us 
or by aid of which we work quickly and lovingly. We read it again. Spiritual agility and vivacity by which charity works in us or by aid of which we work quickly and lovingly. So when we get up in the morning at whatever time and we dedicate our first 15 or 20 or 30 or 60 minutes to the Lord, do we do so quickly and lovingly? Or do we roll over, groan, and say, oh, just another 10 minutes? So the spiritual vivacity and agility is to be worked quickly and lovingly. The world continues by vilifying the holy devotion as much as it can. It pictures devout persons as discontented, gloomy, solemn faces, claims that devotion brings on depression and unbearable moods. Uh, but then he gives us Jacob's Ladder. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jacob's Ladder, but he gives a, uh, gives a new kind of understanding of Jacob's Ladder. On the one hand are the rungs, or excuse me, the, the sides. The one side is prayer. The other side is the sacraments. And the rungs are climbing up in levels of charity. So the goal of us as a devout life is through prayer, and the sacraments, we climb up the rungs of charity. The sacraments he mentions both are confession and Eucharist, but the, the whole prayer side is the side that he spends a good deal of time on. So we have to advance in charity by praying and receiving the sacraments, by doing both. Okay, couple pieces of advice along the way. Find a good guide to lead you. Find a good confessor, good spiritual director if possible and begin by purifying the soul. So if you remember seeing on the, uh, the purgative way, uh, the work of purging the soul means getting rid of sin and attachment to sin. Mortal sin first, venial sins and the attachment to them later. So the work of purging the soul neither can nor should end except with our life itself. So we're never finished. Perfection consists in fighting against imperfections we are never vanquished unless we lose our life or our courage. It only remains for us not to lose courage. Save me, O Lord, from cowardice and discouragement, David says. The second purgation, so after we are purging the soul of sin, we are purging the soul of affection for sin. Many penitents leave sin in effect, but do not leave it in affection. Weak, lazy penitents abstain regretfully for a while from sin. You must not only cease to sin, you must also purify your heart of all affection for sin. Affection for sin is, again, um, sins that we like. Getting angry at other drivers, for example. Perhaps cursing at them, God forbid. Making a confession. So confession is a part, so now we are, we're on the... We have to talk about prayer. Uh, the other side of the ladder is the sacraments. Be sure to state everything with candor and sincerity, and then this way put your conscience completely at rest. Turning to my most gracious and merciful Father, I desire, propose, determine, and irrevocably resolve to serve and love him now and forever. So purging of affection for venial sin, he talks about in addition to mortal sins and affections for mortal sins from which you have been purified by the foregoing exercises, there still remain in your soul various inclinations and affections for venial sin. No matter how small an affection for venial sin is, a venial sin will offend God, although it does not offend him so much that he wills to harm or destroy us. And then he gives us some examples of affection for venial sins. It is not a matter of great moment to tell a little lie or to fall into some slight irregularity in words, actions, looks, dress, jokes, games, or dances. He's, he's pretty down on dancing, just generally. That, that one's hard for me because I, I have, uh, I, in 1996, I learned how to do ballroom and Latin dancing, and, and I still love to dance to this day. And, and so. Anyway, that's, that one, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get to that one once I get a little farther in the development. 
He also talks about uh, affections for useless and dangerous things. Now, some of this may offend you. Uh, sports, banquets, parties, fine clothes, stage comedies are all considered, are all things that considered in themselves are by no means evil. At the same time, such things are always dangerous. And to have an affection for them is still more dangerous. Hence, Philothea, I, I hold that although it is licit to engage in sports, dance, wear fine clothes, attend harmless comedies, etc., to have a strong liking for such things is not only opposed to true devotion, but also extremely harmful and dangerous. It is not evil to do such things, but it is evil to be attached to them. So let's go to, uh, to a little bit more regarding prayer. Various elements for elevating the soul to God by prayer and the sacraments is the title of the second part of the devout life. I especially counsel you to practice mental prayer, the prayer of the heart, and particularly that which centers on the life and passion of our Lord. Set aside an hour every day, if possible early in the morning, when your mind is less distracted and fresher after the night's rest. Don't extend it for more than an hour. If you can perform this exercise in church and find sufficient quiet there, that will be the easiest and most convenient place for you. Begin all your prayers in the presence of God. They must be said with serious attention of mind and with affection aroused. Do not hurry along and say many things, but try to speak from your heart. A single Our Father said with feeling has greater value than many said quickly and hurriedly. If you have the gift of mental prayer, you should always give it first place. During vocal prayer, if you find your heart drawn and invited to interior or mental prayer, don't refuse to take it up. Don't be concerned at not finishing the vocal prayers that you intend to say. Now this is particularly difficult for some of us Catholics. We don't like to not finish anything. If we start it, we're gonna finish it. And, uh, and that's a good thing in most things. But in prayer, the minute you hit affective prayer, is the minute you let go of the vocal and you just have your conversation with Jesus. That's what St. Teresa of Avila says, and that's what St. Francis de Sales is following up with. He gives us a short, simple method of mental prayer. And it is, like I said, it is, it is talked about more fully in that book, Conversation with Christ. I'm just going to take you through it, and then I want to do one with you, okay? Put yourself in God's presence and invoke his assistance. During the invocation, your soul prostrates itself before him with most, the most profound reverence. It acknowledges that it is most unworthy to appear before such sovereign majesty. It implores his grace in order to serve and adore him properly in this meditation. It invokes its guardian angel. I gotta tell you, the first time I read, invoke your guardian angel, all I could think of was, I haven't invoked my guardian angel since I sloughed that prayer off when I was a child. That's a child's prayer. Oh, how wrong I am. Invoking Your guardian angel will be with you at your death. Why not invoke your guardian angel's help? He suggests it here. Ever since I read that, I, I prayed that guardian angel prayer all over again every day ever since. Why are angel, are we have a guardian angel? This isn't just childish uh, Santa Claus-ish stuff. This is real stuff. We're not talking about, we're, we're talking about really important things. Our guardian angel is given to us by God for the entirety of our lives. So let's invoke the help of our guardian angel. When meditating on your own death, you can invoke your guardian angel who will then be with you to inspire you with suitable considerations. And then you picture in your imagination the entire mystery you wish to meditate on. You consider, there always the, you consider that there all follows the act of the intellect, and this we term meditation. This is simply to make one or more considerations in order to raise our affections to God. We meditate, and, and it produces devout movements in our will, such as love of God and neighbor, and then we conclude with an act of thanksgiving. 
We should select one, two, or three points that we liked best and that are most adapted for our improvement, think frequently about them during the day, and then smell them spiritually during the rest of the day. I want to do a meditation with you quick. If you are comfortable, I would invite you to close your eyes. If you are one who's suspicious about closing your eyes, don't. <laughs> this is the fifth meditation that he gives on death. Place yourself in the presence of God. Beg him for his grace. Imagine yourself lying on your deathbed, extremely ill and without any hope of recovery. Consider how uncertain is the day of your death. My soul, one day you will leave this body. When will it be? In winter or in summer? In the city or in the country? By day or by night? Suddenly or after due preparation? From sickness or by accident? Will you have time to make your confession? Not. Will you be assisted by your confessor and spiritual director? Unfortunately, we know nothing whatsoever about all this. Only one thing is certain. We will die, and sooner than we think. Consider that for you the world will then become to an end, because for you it will no longer be. Before your, your eyes, it will be hurled over and over. Yes, at that moment, all the pleasure, frivolity, worldly joy, and useless affection will appear before you like phantoms and misty clouds. Ah, my soul, for what toys and idle fancies have I offended God? You will see that you have forsaken him for nothing at all. On the contrary, devotion and good works will then seem sweet and desirable. Why did I not follow that lovely, pleasant path? Sins that once seemed so small will then appear as huge as mountains, and your devotion very little. Consider the long, languishing goodbye that your soul will give to this base world. It will bid farewell to wealth, to empty things and useless associations, to pleasures and pastimes, to friends and neighbors, to parents, children, husband, wife, in a word to every creature, and at last to its own body, which it will leave behind pale, ghastly, wasted, hideous, and loathsome. Consider with what haste they will carry away that body and bury it in the earth. And this done, the world will scarcely think about you or keep your memory any more than you have thought of others. May God grant him peace, they will say, and that is all. O death, how powerful thou art, how pitiless thou art. Consider how the soul, after leaving the body, goes its way either to the right or to the left. Alas, where will your soul go? Which way will it take? It will be none other than the one begun in this world. Pray to God and cast yourself into his arms. Lord, take me under your protection on that dreadful day. Only make that last hour happy and favorable to me and rather let all the other days of my life be sad and sorrowful. O world, since I do not know the hour when I must leave you, I will no longer set my heart on you. My dear friends, my dear relations, let me no longer love you except with a holy friendship that can last eternally. Why should I unite myself to you in such wise as to be forced to give up and break our union? I wish to prepare myself for that hour and to take all needed care to make a blessed departure. 
With all my power, I wish to ensure the proper state of conscience and to correct such and such defects. Return thanks to God for these resolutions which he has given you. Offer them to his majesty. Beseech him again to grant you a happy death through the merits of his son's death. Implore the assistance of the Virgin Mary and the saints. End with a Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You can open your eyes back up, those of you who closed them. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting to meditate on such things. He has lots of meditations in this book that are worth, he has one on sin that I thought, well, your death is probably gonna be easier for you than to do the one on sin. So I thought, well, you can, you can pick that one up when you can. <laughs> but there's a certain lack of, uh, th there's not a lot of happiness in that, in what he's doing there, but it is reality. And if you are going to try to live a devout life, he wants you to deal with what's real. That's the most important part of life. And, and the spiritual life is the most real. The spiritual world is the most real. This world, though I think many of us think uh, this stuff, what we have, who we are, this body, this is the most real. No, no, no. It's the spiritual life that's the most real. And we will see that very clearly after our death. Quick couple of comments regarding prayer in the morning. He, uh, evangelical Protestants, I don't know if you, uh, how many of you know some evangelical Protestants. But one of the phrases that they have is, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no bed. The Catholics would say something a little different. No morning prayer, no breakfast. No examination of conscience, no bed. That's what St. Francis de Sales would say. So before you eat, you should have taken some time in prayer in the morning. Before you go to bed, you should take some time of examination of conscience. And he does a great job of showing how to do that in this book. He also recommends that during the day you make a retreat into your own heart. That during the course of the day, even when you're in the midst of company with others, that somehow you retreat into your heart and you say, all right, Lord, I'm in the midst of this, but this is your day. This is, we are, we are your servants. I mean, in conversations with Father, I'll sometimes do that and he'll wonder where I've gone. Uh, I, I'm kidding. <laughs> so he asks us to retire into our own inmost heart, even during the course of the day, to, rem to remind ourselves, you know what, Lord, you're in charge. You're in charge of my life. He also says, become familiar with the angels and see how often, how they are often present, though unseen in your life. Above all, have particularly, particular love and reverence for your guardian angel, the guardian angels of those who live around you and with you, and the guardian angel of the diocese in which you live. You should be invoking those guardian angels to help you, just like you do the Blessed Mother. He also says, be devoted to the Word of God, but all, always also have at hand some approved book of devotion. So I talked about bedtime or on your, on your bedstand. You should have certain books. Dr. Devil's uh, talk on the confessions is one that's definitely worth having. Uh, I, would, I would put this one in the same category, the devout life. Also, keep track of your inspirations from God each day. Write them down. When God gives you an inspiration, write them down and then return to them during the course of the day a couple of different times. Confession. Never let your soul remain long infected by sin. Make a humble, devout confession every week, he says. Wow. I go to confession once a month, and I think that's a lot. 
uh, you know, but uh, once a week, you know, maybe once you, once you hit a more devout level, uh, we go once a week. But I, I again, I, this is one where I got my, my, my hind end handed to me. If possible, before you go to communion, even though you were not conscious of being guilty of mortal sin, you will also practice the virtues of humility, obedience, simplicity, and charity. Many who confess their venial sins out of custom and concern for order, but without thought of amendment, remain burdened with them for their whole life. So we want to also make that firm resolution to amend our lives. Don't be satisfied when you confess with saying that you told a lie without harming anyone by it. State whether you did it out of vainglory to praise or excuse yourself, or you told it as a foolish joke or through obstinacy. Feel free to accuse yourself in front of your priest, he says. We must state the fact, the motive, and the duration of our sins. Frequent communion. Here's where he quotes St. Augustine. Whoever turns to Holy Communion frequently and devoutly so effectively builds up his soul's health that it is almost impossible for him to be poisoned by evil affection of any kind. St. Augustine states, I neither recommend nor do I condemn daily reception of the Eucharist. I neither recommend nor do I condemn. But I persuade and exhort everyone to receive communion every Sunday, provided his soul is without any affection for sin. So, if you go to, to Mass regularly, keep going to Mass regularly if this is what God is calling you to do. If God has not moved your heart in that yet, then don't go every day yet. But when God moves your heart, then you go. That's, that's simply what he says. I neither recommend nor do I condemn daily reception. Right straight from St. Augustine. Okay, so we've got prayer and the sacraments, we've got the climbing of the ladder, and then the next sec section on the, on the whole, um, that whole list that I had here has to do with virtue. This is the longest section, and I'm going to just paraphrase parts of it, but it's the longest section, over 100 pages of The Devout Life. So it's obviously important that we do some work on virtue and working on virtues during the course of our lives. Meekness, temperance, integrity, and humility are virtues that must mark all our actions in life. We must always have on hand a good supply of these general, general virtues. And each person must practice in a special manner the virtues needed by the kind of life he is called to. So, Sometimes we need specific virtues. In my office, I need patience and I need wisdom. And I gotta tell you, I don't have enough of either. But I pray for them. By patience you will win souls. The more perfect our patience, the more completely do we possess our souls. This one I still uh, reread. Do not speak words expressing humility or else speak them with a sincere interior feeling in keeping with what we order outwardly. Our words always should be suited as closely as possible to what we feel, so that in all things and through all things we may maintain heartfelt sincerity and candor. What does that mean? Lots of people spend a lot of time acting humble and stating things that look humble, self-deprecation, etc., etc. But if it's not true, we must not say it. If somebody gives you a compliment about something that you are good at, the answer is not, well, I'm, I'm not very good at that, because that's not true. Does that make sense? So for, for DeSales, he gives a little twist on humility that says, it's not about what, it, it, we, we must manage humility in conjunction with truth. If you can't say anything that is going to be true, just say thank you. That's enough. A young gentleman or a young lady who refuses to take part in the dissipated conduct of a debauched group 
or to talk, play, dance, drink, or dress like the rest will be scorned and criticized by the others and their modesty will be called fanaticism or prudery. To love it when they do this to us is to love our own abjection in all humility. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly love when people call me names or say that I'm not X or Y. He's saying, not only when you are doing, when they're telling you about these things, love it because that is a source of your objection. Amazing. Talks about managing to, uh, to protect our good name, but to do so in truth. In other words, I, I've met many people who are trying to protect their good name just by protecting their good name. The best way to protect your good name is to be virtuous. There's the truth. Uh, and lots of folks, when we have, the more we have, the more money we have, the more we have to protect, the more we want to put on artifices, our goal must always be to preserve your good name, but to do it by being virtuous. My William is eight years old, just turned eight. Miss O'Hearn's religion class, uh, certain things in our family are spilled out in front of the whole world to see. <laughs> They were talking about confession, and I've already confessed to you my inability to be patient with drivers. And, and my William said, they were walking through their whole list of things that they had to confess. He turns to Miss Orr and he says, my dad's gonna have to confess the sin of, the sin of cursing while he's driving. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I want to preserve my good name, I actually have to behave myself. The best way to preserve your good name is by being virtuous. Let me end with the place where he ends. He ends with a firm protestation. And it's in the last several pages of the devout life. And he says to do this once a year and then to renew it once a month. I'm just going to do it quick with you and then offer you his last words and uh, then open it up for some questions. Consider various parts of your protestation. The first is that you have given up, cast away, detested, and renounced forever all mortal sin. First thing you do in your protestation, I will never sin mortally again in my life. Number one. Number two. Second, that you have dedicated and consecrated your soul, heart, body, and all their faculties to God's love and service. Third, if you happen to fall into any evil deed, you will immediately rise up again by the help of God's grace and go to confession. Next, think of the one to whom you have made this protestation, for it is to God. Remember in whose presence you made it. The Blessed Mother, Saint Joseph, your guardian angel, Saint Louis. Remember by what means you were led to make your protestation. How sweet and gracious God was to you at that time. Consider the effects of the calling of God from your youth. Compare that with what you are now and with what you were. I think you will find a great change for the better as you look back. Do you not esteem it fortunate that you can converse with God in prayer, that you have the desire and will to love him, that the great passions that troubled you are now appeased and pacified? You've avoided innumerable sins and troubles of conscience. You've received communion so much more often than you would have done. All these are great favors. And so he says in the end, and when the labors of a devout life seem hard to you, sing with St. Francis of Assisi. Such are the joys that lure my sight. All pains grow sweet, all labors light. Such are the joys that lure my sight. All pains grow sweet, all labors light.
Yeah, they're in the first part. I want to say there are ten of them. First meditation on our creation. On the end for which we were created. On God's benefactions. On sin. There's the one that will help you a lot. On judgment. <laughs> on hell. <laughs> on paradise. So not all, it's not all just sin and hell. <laughs> the, the election and choice of heaven. The election and choice the soul makes of a devout life. That's it. So those are they. There's a question here. Go ahead. A general confession is that done at the end of your life, or is it something you? Yeah, great question. Yeah, uh, she asks um, the the meaning of the word a general confession. The general confession is that confession that we make routinely every every week. He talks about it as a general confession. Uh, it's it's kind of a strange phrase, but it's just normal confession. So that's not one that we make at the end of our life. Please. When they reach the state where they have no venial sins, no mortal sins, what do they say in confession? <laughs> it's, that's, a, that's a terrific question. I will say this, that even the greatest saints consider their affections and some things that the rest of us would look at and say, that's not a sin. They still consider those imperfections uh, falling short of the glory of God. And so from my standpoint, they still see themselves as sinning, even though they don't anymore. That's been my, my reading of many of the great saints. So what do they say in the confessional? I think they have lots to say. They blame themselves for much. And I think part of that is just... Their level of holiness is so great, they see themselves as so being, being so far short of God. Go ahead, Mrs. Ryan. So, now, Padre Pio, I've read a little bit, he was a, clearly a sinful man in his way he would blast people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be afraid to have walked in. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when you say they never sin, saints, the whole point of we're supposed to be striving to be a saint. They still sin. I mean, until the day they die. I mean, don't you think? Or <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to. Yeah. The 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 truth is that the unitive way. When folks are far enough advanced on the unitive way, they have reached human perfection. When they're far enough. That's right. They they haven't reached divine perfection, but human perfection. They've reached it, and. Therefore, they need no time in purgatory. They have no affection for sin anymore. Their, their, uh, their habitudes have been cleansed. The direction of their soul is fully ready to see God face to face. So, yeah. Please, one last question. Yeah, the, the nice thing about this book is it has very short sections. And I think it's really helpful to read it in those little sh short sections. I, the first time I read it, I did like a good Catholic does, and I, wrote it, I read it from cover to cover in a weekend. And, uh, and I realized, oh my gosh, there's a lot here. And it was great for me to kind of get a trajectory of the whole thing. But I would say that with a book like this, before you go to confession, go ahead and, and there's, a, there's a nice table of contents that says how to make a general confession. Just go read that before you go. So use it according to different things, uh, different places where you are in your life and what you've got planned, what you're planning to do. Um, and then when you're trying to make progress in prayer, into, toward mental prayer or, or affective prayer, 
Go ahead and read those spots and read them over and over again until uh, your soul gets accustomed to them. But I would read it in sections and don't read it from cover to cover in chronological order. That's a mistake. And, and also look at, look at the different sections. So uh, where it's talking about prayer and the sacraments, if that's a place where you need some work in, in the whole prayer and the sacraments, just concentrate there for a time and read those. Okay, thanks so much. Grateful to be here with you. Thank you, Dr. Bernier. Um, our final lecture, St. Therese of Lisieux by Father Robert Altier is next Friday. Please come out for that. Thank you, everyone, for coming.